My son Luke was three years old, and it was my turn to hide my eyes. So I said one, two, three, counted on up to 20, and then said it. I said, ready or not, here I come. And I stood up, and I went into the bathroom, and I pulled open the shower curtain, and, you know, this three-year-old, he wasn't there. And uh, then I went and looked under the bed, and he wasn't there either. And then I walked down the hall, and it was at that point that I caught a vision of down the steps, our front door was standing wide open. And now if you are a parent, you know the parental pit that happens in your stomach when you think something might be happening with your child. And so I ran down the stairs, I ran outside, I said, Luke, and I looked for him in the bushes, but he was not there. Luke, I looked in the garage, he was not there. And what seemed like an eternity was probably just 15 minutes or so, but 15 minutes of your three-year-old not being found is a pretty scary thing. And sure enough, we found him, guys, across the busy street in the neighbor's backyard playhouse. When I finally found him, I thought, sure, he would be weeping, he'd be crying, he'd be scared, he'd be confused. But he looked up at me and just put his arms up like this. I scooped him up and I said, buddy, were you afraid? And he said, no, you my daddy, I know you find me. See, that's a boy that has confidence that his dad would never quit looking for him. His dad would relentlessly pursue him until he found him. You know, in Luke 15, Jesus tells three stories about people that lose things. And it's interesting because it's the only time that Jesus tells three stories right in a row anywhere in the Bible. It's as if Jesus is trying to say, hey, what I'm saying here, it, it, it's pretty important. Now, in, in one story, a shepherd has a hundred sheep, one wanders off, the shepherd leaves the 99, goes and finds the one, and brings him back. In the second story, this is a short story, there's a woman that has ten coins. She loses one in her house, and she basically searches all night, rips her house apart until she finds the coin, and then she has a little celebration. And then the third story is kind of the longest of the three. It's about a father, father, he's got two boys. The youngest comes to the father and says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. The father reluctantly says, okay. And the boy takes the money and he runs off to a wild land. Jesus said, squanders it in wild living. He hits rock bottom and decides he's going to go back, try to apologize to his dad, see if his dad will take him on as just a hired hand. And Jesus paints this amazing picture of the boy coming home. He's rehearsing his apology. And the father, seemingly scanning the horizon, waiting for his son to come home, sees his boy far off, gets up and runs. Now back then, distinguished, elderly, older people, they did not run. But the father doesn't care. He sees his boy and he gets up and he runs to meet his boy. And he doesn't wave a, a finger of judgment at the boy. He scoops him up. He wraps his arms around him. He celebrates. He forgives. He throws a party for his son. And Jesus tells three stories right in a row of people, people who have lost things and went on a frantic, relentless search to find them. Now, they might seem unrelated on the surface. You've got a livestock story. You've got a financial story. And you've got a family story but the truth is is that if we understand the passion 
in these three stories, and we'll understand why Jesus is the greatest visionary of all time. Because it's in getting at these stories that, 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 that Jesus communicates something that has the power to change our hearts. It has the power to change our church. And guys, it has the power to change our world. And you look at that first story and with that shepherd, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, why would you leave 99 to go after the one? But then again, I don't know a whole lot about shepherding. <laughs> and Jesus' crowd, his audience did. He knew that that shepherd wasn't thinking pragmatically. He wasn't thinking economically. Uh, the, the, the Bible talks about the shepherd, uh, the sheep know the shepherd's voice. They spend time together. There's a, there's a relationship. He cared for each and every one of those sheep. He loved them. It wasn't economic to him. They were like his pets. And how many of you know that people do crazy things because they love their pets? Am I right? People do crazy things for their pets. Now, I want to introduce you to somebody. This is Sadie. Everybody say, aww. Yeah. This is our dog. Or more accurately, my daughter's dog. Because I did not want to get a dog, but my daughter was nine years old, and it was all she wanted, and so we got this dog. Well, a few years ago, we were having family Thanksgiving, and my wife put some bread dough out on the back porch for the yeast to rise, for the dough to rise. A few minutes later, Sadie went to the front door. Uh, she needed to do her business, and so we let her out the front door. No one would thought about the fact that Sadie's nose can smell that bread. She went right around to the back, and she ate all of the bread dough. Now, I don't know if you know what happens to yeast, to bread dough, in a moist, warm, doggy belly. But that dough began to rise. We saw our dog, Sadie's belly, get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And we got more worried and more worried and more worried. To the point that Sadie could barely walk anymore. She was kind of stumbling this way and stumbling that way. She couldn't really even walk in a straight line anymore. So finally, I took her to the vet. And uh, I went home. The vet checked her out. The vet called me. She said, well, Mr. Dummett, we can go ahead and pump the dog's stomach. And I said, well, that's okay, but what about the stumbling? I mean, I'm, I'm imagining that it's gotten so big, it's putting pressure on her spine. And, and, and is that going to be okay or is that damaged? She said, oh, no, 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 Mr. Dummett, the yeast has fermented. Your dog is absolutely drunk. That is what's going on with your dog. So I don't know if you've got a party coming up that you want to kind of spice things up, but you're welcome to borrow my alcoholic dog to come to your party. But anyway, then the vet told me this. It's going to be $700 to fix your dog. And I want you to know, at that moment, I started thinking economically. I started thinking pragmatically. But when I looked down at my daughter Grace's eyes, looking up at me, tears forming in her eyes, how many of you know she was not thinking economically? She would do whatever it takes to save her dog. And that's what's going on with that shepherd as well. It doesn't matter what the cost is. We care about every one of the sheep. Well, what about this woman? This woman that's got these 10 coins. Now, I don't know about you, but I mean, I value every coin. I, I, I you know, leave a penny, take a penny. I'm going to take a penny. Okay. No, I'll leave a penny too. But here's the thing. If I lose a coin, 
I don't spend all night looking for it. I mean, I might like look behind the sofa cushions or that sort of thing, but I'm not going to spend all night tearing my, par- my house apart. I just figure it'll turn up eventually. But this woman spends all night tearing her house apart. Now, I didn't understand that until someone explained to me that in those days, when a woman got married, she had a veil. And what decorated her veil were ten coins. And so when Jesus said it was a woman who had ten coins and she lost one of those coins, the explanation that makes the most sense to me for why she so passionately searched for that one coin is that it wasn't what the coin was worth to her. It, or it wasn't what the coin was worth. It was what the coin was worth to her. It was like losing your wedding ring. It was like, I, 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 that represents a relationship. That represents years of, of love. That represents so much. And so she goes on this passionate search because of the immense worth of that coin, not in and of itself, but it was what it was worth to her. And then you have this father, this father whose son had gone off and admittedly made some mistakes, done some things that he shouldn't have done. And the people of Jesus' day, especially those religious leaders, they would they would they would, they would criticize Jesus for hanging out with criminals, for hanging out with lost people, for hanging out with sinners. They criticized him for eating meals with them and spending time with them. And so Jesus has these people in front of him and he tells them these stories about a shepherd and he tells them a story about a, a, a lost coin and then he tells them a story about this son who's gone off and done some horrible things. But about a father who sees that son in the distance and says, I don't care what he's done, that's my son. That is a father's heart toward his son. I will forgive you, I will celebrate the fact, I will welcome you back into the home. And folks... Folks, that is the heart of God. And as I've been at Willow Creek in the last few months, I will tell you that 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 is the heart of Willow Creek. This church was founded on a conviction that lost people matter immensely to God. And that we ought to have the heart of the Father that would say we will relentlessly pursue. We will do everything short of sin. We will go after people because they have an immense worth to God. And so if they, if they matter that much to God, then they ought to matter to us. Guys, since I've been here, people have said, hey, what's your vision for the church? Great question. An even better question is what is Jesus' vision for his church? And guys, I think he makes it very clear In Luke 15, it is that we ought to have the heart of that father toward that son. He makes it even more clear in Matthew 28, 19. He says, therefore, go, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. The heart of the father to reach lost people to teach them everything that jesus has commanded us to make disciples well i got here in may and in may we spent the whole month basically doing listening sessions we got with staff people and we got with attenders of the church from different campuses and just tried to understand the story of willow the 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 struggles of willow the successes of willow And now what I would like to do with you, because over the last few months we've been working with elders, we've been working with staff to try and to sort of answer the question, what is next for Willow Creek? 
What's next in this season? What is next in chasing Jesus' vision for his church? Well, what's next? I I made an acrostic because my kids always roll their eyes when I make an acrostic when I preach. And so I thought I'd I'd make an acrostic. But here's here's what I want to share with you. N, new public spaces. You know, Willow Creek is known for taking the church's most public space the weekend service, and utilizing that strategically to reach lost people. And guys, now the world has an even more public space. It's called the internet. The internet. And business folks are telling us it's not Amazon, the king of online retail, and it's not Macy's, the king of brick-and-mortar retail, but it's Walmart and Target that are best positioned moving forward because they've figured out how to engage both in-person and online customers. Does that make sense? Both in-person and online. Now, I cannot wait to open up our buildings. In fact, I think you are finding that slowly that is beginning to happen. If you haven't heard more and more, that's going to be happening. And we want that to be powerful. But at the same time, we want to lean into this amazing new opportunity to open up digital engagement for people. Online experience for people. Guys, in the past, we've spent millions of dollars to reach thousands of people. We now have the opportunity to spend thousands of dollars to reach millions of people. Public spaces. Let me give you another public space. Uh, Willow. You pioneered church buildings that took out stained glass windows and pews and other religious symbols because you wanted to make irreligious people feel more comfortable in the environment. And at my last church, we built on your concept. And instead of building a traditional church building, we built a community center. In fact, we put a sign out front that said, Coming soon you decide. We bought a building and we put a sign out front that said, coming soon, you decide. We had people from the community actually text in ideas for what they wanted in their community center. And people texted in all kinds of things. We want programs for kids. We want to see indoor sports. We want to see restaurant food service. We want to see all kinds of stuff. I got one email. It was a big, long email that said, we really want to see roller derby in the new community center. We really believe that that would change our community. And I thought, you know, I think it probably would change the community. I just don't know if that's the change we were looking for. But we listened to all of those people, and we made a building that was basically a gift. Now, we owned it, but it was a gift to our community. We've got some pictures up here. We had an indoor soccer field. We had a school for the arts. We had a restaurant, we had a three-story playscape for kids, we had basketball courts, a CrossFit gym, and we opened it up all week long. And every day, hundreds of people that did not attend our church would show up for music lessons or flag football practice, or they would show up for uh, a business meeting and, 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 or a conference, or, or they would show up and they ended up giving their lives to Jesus because they'd already been in our 
environment, public spaces, and community centers were helping us reach younger families. Now, I don't know if you know this, but 77 people that, 77% of people that come to Jesus do so by the time they're 21 years old. Did you know that? Man, you know what that tells me? That we have to be intentional about reaching younger families. And our facilities can play a part in helping us do that. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to build what you just saw. It doesn't mean that we, we need to, to do it just like what you saw in those pics. But over the next few months, I would love to come to you with some ideas about how we might repurpose our facilities so that they become places where families in our community want to hang out every day of the week and not just on Sundays. New public spaces. Let me give you the E. E is everyone in a group and every group on mission. Once we reach people, we need to give them the best environment possible for them to grow and from which to go. Grow and go. And I don't know of any better environment for that other than small groups. I don't want us to be a church with small groups. I want us to be a church of small groups, built on small groups. And what if every group was committed to growing in spiritual maturity and going into our neighborhoods and unleashing a wave of compassion and justice in every city that we call home? Everybody in a group and everybody on mission. Guys, the gathered church is wonderful. I love the gathered church. I love the lights. I love the energy. I love the worship. I love the gathered church. But the power is in the scattered church. That's where we have the power to really change the world. People have been asking me, Dave, how do you feel like we need to heal? How will we heal from the pain of the last two years? And I would say, well, the best place I know would be in groups on mission. Okay, so, so then how, how are you, how, what's your plan for discipling people and raising up volunteers and raising up leaders? I would say um, within groups on mission. All right, so but how do we care for each other? Like this is a very big place. And so how do we make sure that people don't fall through the cracks and we care for each other's needs? I would say in groups on mission. Well, how do we increase Bible engagement? Because, you know, that will really help catalyze people in spiritual growth. I would say in groups on mission is the best place to do that. How do we mobilize the people of our church for compassion and justice in their cities? You want to help me with this? In groups on mission. Absolutely. You know, we've been great at being a come and see church. We invite people, come and see, come and see. We also want to be a go and be church as well. Now, this is fun. If you add up the seats in all of our facilities, do you know it's like 20,000 seats? And in some ways, we've been, you know, kind of proud of that. You know, we should be. I mean, it's amazing what's been built, what's been built around here. But wouldn't it be great? I mean, I'd be even more excited about seeing us as not having 20,000 seating capacity, but a 20,000 sending capacity. To have this idea that every weekend we could have tens of thousands of people being sent into the world to go be the church where they live, work, and play. Every group, everybody in a group, in every group 
on mission. Um, if you're not in the group yet, I, w- I want to challenge you or encourage you. Next week, you're going to hear more about the Journey Through Daniel series that we're going to do. And we're going to invite you to get into a small group. And so uh, I just really want to encourage you to be looking for that and, and make that next step. Get in a small group. All right, N, E, and now X. X factor multiplication. Can we play a quick game, just real quick? Let's play a quick game. Let's play Would You Rather. Would you rather have one penny and to have that penny doubled in the first day and then doubled again on the second day and then doubled again on the third day, all the way up for 30 days to have your pennies doubled once a day for 30 days or $5 million? Now, you're smart people, so you know where I'm going with this. Obviously, it's the pennies, right? But did you know? That, that if you doubled pennies once a day for 30 days, you'd end up with $5,368,709.12. It would weigh 54,000 pounds. You'd need a forklift to take you to the bank, but you'd be rich. Guys, that is the power of multiplication. And yes, we want to add more people to the seven churches that we have, but I also think that we want to multiply the churches that we have. We need to start new campuses and start new churches. Some interesting statistics. New churches will baptize three times as many people as older churches. That's a LifeWay study uh, using churches that are uh, both above 10 years of age or below 10 years of age. Three times as many people with newer churches. New churches reach more previously unchurched people than older churches. 42% who formerly were not in a church at a newer church. And then churches that plant churches will grow faster. On average, 21.5% increase in new growth for five years after the launch of a church. Church planting is just the most effective way to reach lost people and to evangelize the world. It just is. Half of you are watching this service because somebody at this church said, you know what, we need a new campus in Huntley. Or we need a new, a new campus in Crystal Lake. Or we need a new campus in North Shore, or South Lake, or Chicago. Half of you are watching this because somebody said, we need to launch a new campus. And so I would like to say, now listen, our last campus was five years ago. So I'd love to encourage us to think about launching within the next couple of years, a new campus of Willow Creek, hopefully in San Diego or Naples. Um, I'm told that's going to be a challenge, but a guy can dream, okay? Also, a new church domestically and a new church plant um, globally. I'd love to see an X-factor multiplication. And then finally, the T. Together, one church. One multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-campus church. Can we just be honest? We've been a pretty divided church. We've been a church where people have taken sides on how the last two years were handled by leadership. We've been divided. There's a trust gap with leadership, with staff, with congregation. You know, we have campuses that are operating with different visions, different priorities, different systems. 
And we've been a divided church. We've been a church recently polarized by race issues and how we should be responding. Now, fortunately, we have an election coming up, and so I imagine that will unify us and help us all come together into one big, happy family. But just in case the election doesn't do that, I say we lean into what my good friend Albert Tate said. He said this, you know what? I don't follow the donkey, and I don't follow the elephant. I follow the lamb. Isn't that good? That guy ought to preach, you know what I mean? That is good stuff. And what he's saying is, Jesus, you know what? Jesus said in John 17, Jesus said, I pray that they may all be one. That we might have a unified church. And he connects it to, you know what? And they'll know we're Christians by being one. Like that will affect our mission. In other words, we won't accomplish the vision in, uh, in, in John 15 or in, uh, in Matthew 28 unless we accomplish the vision that Jesus has for his church in John 17. So I'm so excited to let you know as a staff we've partnered with World Vision to actively pursue what it looks like as a church to pursue justice and racial reconciliation. We've implemented dashboards to track our staffing against community demographics to hold us accountable to empowering people of color and women at all levels of leadership. And we're putting a diversity champion on our executive team helping us to not only pursue compassion and justice out there, but to make sure that we're seeing it happen in here, in our own church as well. And to be one church, we're creating a new staff team whose entire job is to serve and to resource all of our campuses. This core team, it's not a South Barrington team, it's not a Chicago team, it's a central team that will work in tandem to bring our campuses together to say, hey, where can we find best practices? Where can we find efficiencies? Where can we work together while still leaving some space for local campuses to contextualize and best reach people where they are? One church working together. And then finally, I just want to say this as a leadership. We want to close the gap of trust. And I don't know how to do that except to just say that we're trying hard to be elders and staff that are just transparent, no-spin people. Uh, you deserve leaders that are worth following. And you deserve teachers that are worth listening to. And we just got to get back to where we trust each other again. So what's next for Willow? New public spaces. Everybody in a group, every group on mission, X-factor multiplication, and together, one church. Now, what's the timeline? Well, we should have this figured out by next week, all right? No, just kidding. Listen, in November, we're going to continue fleshing this out as a staff. Some of you know we're going through a restructure right now. We've got to get our team in place. In December, we're going to be holding events uh, for people, if you want to propel this vision forward financially, we want you to be able to come and hear a more detailed version, be able to do a Q&A and that sort of thing. So if you have the gift of giving, be on the lookout for those events in December. And then in January, we're going to be holding worship and vision nights at each campus and inviting people to come and hear about what does this mean particularly in detail for your campus. In the meantime, what can you do? Three things. One, uh, get in a small group that's committed to growing and going. Second thing, give. 
Your financial contribution uh, is going to give us, especially as we go into the end of the year, it's going to give us the confidence to move into this next year strong. So please, please participate financially. Sean challenged people last week. I thought it was great. He said, take a next step in your generosity and commit to that through the end of the year. Guys, that would be so powerful. And then finally, will you pray? Will you pray? And I say finally, but the truth is that's the most important because I have never seen a significant move of God happen apart from God's people praying. We need to see God revive things that are dormant in our hearts. We need to see God build bridges with people that are right now not all that happy with each other. We need to see God build trust with people that right now we're not sure if we can trust. We want to see God ignite in us an evangelistic fervor like never before. We want to see a move of God, and so we need to pray. God loves to hear his people pray. In fact, that's how I would love for all of us to end this service today. We're going to put a prayer uh, up on the screen, and I just want to invite all of us, wherever you are, on a treadmill, at home in your living room, or here at a watch party, to pray this prayer with me. Ready? Let's pray. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may be not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. And it's in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it's in dying that we're born to eternal life. Amen.